It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. We, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 to just um just go over your views on gentrification again okay sure sure that's fine. all right so i'll just and then be really informal so okay no problem all that's right, cool. so just, just go ahead and say so i'm gonna um okay welcome theo how are you i'm doing all right all right thank you so much for um just coming back to uh further the discussion or re-record the discussion that we started mm -hmm. Uh, last week in uh, Camden, as we were riding around, mm -hmm. um, so it, it was it was a very I love riding around Camden with you because you have so much historical knowledge, mm -hmm. being the son of the city. But um, I wanted to just revisit what we spoke about, which was mm -hmm. um, the changes in Camden. If, you got to turn down your volume. <laughs> um, oh, you can hear that. Oh, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. I, yeah, that's um, the that's the replaying John McCain's funeral on, on MSNBC. I understand. Can you go so, ahead. Let me turn it down. Yes, thank you. Wow. <laughs> yeah, this is the uh, Barack Obama portion. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. No problem. Okay. So um I'm probably gonna keep that in. So Hey, welcome back to Mic'd Up Everyone. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. And I know, I know if you tried to sit down and listen to episode 11, it may have been a little difficult. I understand. Who knew that my mobile mic would pick up audio from the air conditioning vent in a, in a car so well, but it did. <laughs> um, so I apologize for that. However, this is my mulligan episode. This is my do-over. I sat down with my friend, Theo Spencer, whose voice you may have heard in the, the original episode 11. Uh, I sat down with him today uh, and we chatted via video conference. So you'll be able to hear more of his messaging and his thoughts about gentrification, about policing in, in communities of color and displacement of poor people and all of that, right? So you'll hear his perspective presented a little bit better um, because we're in a controlled environment. Um, but moreover, like I mentioned before in episode 11, uh, we I want to be clear. Camden and Charleston are very different cities. However, there are parallels that I found uh, in terms of the recent changes and the approach that I believe a lot of elected officials are taking in solving some of the more chronic problems. So please uh, listen along as Theo explains the changes that he's witnessed throughout Camden, New Jersey, and hopefully you'll be able to take a little bit some for yourself and think about your neighborhoods and how to empower yourself. And people that get involved in politics in Camden, Kelly Ripper's father 
graduated from Camden High. You know, oh. everybody knows Kelly Ripper from um, um, yeah, from uh, television. Yeah. Her father's a local politician. Um, they all everybody went to Camden High. So wait, who's her? Who's her father? What office? Her father is actually the county clerk, I believe. Oh. So so basically. Um, in New Jersey, the county clerk handles the elections and, you know, any function that you have to get in the county, you know, death certificates, birth certificates, all that sort of thing. Okay. Um, um, so, 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 yeah, yeah. So, Cam- so Camden High boasted some, some well-known or just some, you know, some well-known names in New Jersey history. So, mm-hmm. so let me ask you this. So it was being torn down because it was in disrepair. Was there any, yeah, was there it any was, to save it? Well, um, so I was on the school board in 2009. And at that point, I, since I'm a graduate at Camden High and there was this talk about tearing it down, uh, I went and I looked and as much as I love the high school, it's, it's sort of like a parent that's very, very ill. You know, you want to fight for them, but you know that, you know, their time on earth is imminent. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, it was in, it was in disrepair. Um, there was, in our community, I don't think people realize how serious the talk was and um, what that involves. So, so in New Jersey, every five years the state needs a, a plan for your uh, facilities and um, basically the state had said well Camden High is not suitable to educate children anymore mm-hmm. and then that's when it kind of caused this issue where it's like well, we love the school we want to save it but then you start getting into all these complicated issues of well save it to do what because you know it can't really educate ch- children anymore there were all types of issues in the building in terms of the plumbing, in terms of rodents, in terms of um, things that <clears throat> mysteriously made people sick because we know that those buildings had asbestos and stuff like that in them because that was just the materials that were used in the 50s and 60s before people knew the damage that that could do. Right. So <clears throat> there was a there was uh, another thing was Camden High. The main building looked like a castle, but the additional buildings were sort of like historically they were insignificant, and they were just add-ons to the building. Okay. So they were talk about you know demolishing all of those, but saving the main building because it was the iconic castle part. Um, okay. But okay, I want to move yeah. forward. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, yeah, I understand. Um, so, the, the, you know, there are a lot of changes going on. I think, you know, even with, like, um, something like that that has a lot of sentimental, you know, feelings and emotions attached to it, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I guess it makes me feel like um, with that coming down, it's almost like an example of, of all of the changes taking place in Camden right now. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, uh, so, you know, that's just one piece of a bigger puzzle, but as we were riding around, excuse me, as we were riding around Camden, yeah. we we saw so much, um, you know, there was either revitalization with that traffic mm. uh, triangle, or there was new construction of newer schools, and yeah. newer, uh, I guess newer headquarters. Um, and so you, what you mentioned, but the, the whole demolition of Camden High, you mentioned people's engagement level. So 
can you speak on people being aware of the changes and being a part of the changes going on in Camden? Well, yeah. That the, the demolition of um, Camden High Signal, and I think that's what you're getting to is that it's a it's a overt signal to gentrification. You know this this, this symbolic thing in our communities got you know torn down, and that that you know signals that there's other things that are coming that are not for us, mm-hmm. and somehow we're all going to be displaced by these things. And, you know, Camden is no different than most black communities in that we have this innate belief that the man or whoever it is is going to do whatever they're going to do. We can't necessarily stop it. You know, the um, a lot of times the pushback is, you know, too little, too late. Um, a lot of times the pushback is uh, unorganized or uh, people are operating out of a lack of understanding of what's going on. So you can't really effectively organize. So, you know, I think universally, people thought that Kim the High should have been saved and could have been saved. I talk to those people all the time. Um, I think the, the thing is people don't understand what they could have done to fight it. They don't understand how to fight it. They don't even see it on the horizon. And, you know, people just think that they made some decision and, you know, tore the building down over the course of a year. So folks are more, so folks are more reactive. Um, yeah. That's why, I guess that's what I'm definitely heading to. I'm and this wasn't, and this wasn't even something that, this was something that had been in the works and this is something that they had been building the groundwork for with the state for at least seven or eight years. Mm. So it's not something, so with gentrification and a lot of this stuff, it's not something that just happened overnight because somebody wanted to do it. There are a lot of political things at work that are laying a predicate for what's going to go down. Okay. And if you don't understand and you're not paying attention to those things, then you you can't defend it. Right. You you can't defend yourself against it. So what, um, you know, and I'm trying to I'm gonna try to get through a, a couple of sure. uh, questions. So, um, what do you think? You you mentioned like people kind of creating this whole like boogeyman type yeah, of, yeah. Like, uh, a force against them. And I'm not gonna try to belittle people's. I guess um, I'm not gonna you know undermine or or I guess underestimate. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not. Gonna I'm not trying to undermine, and I'm not trying to I guess you know, make people look foolish for believing in like some boogeyman. But I I am trying to highlight the fact that a lot of this stuff isn't real. It's not monumental, earth shattering stuff. It's really very small incremental changes that happen over time that uh, eventually snowball into something else. And if you're not paying attention, it's like, oh, they just did whatever they wanted to do. Right. It's like no, no, they didn't do whatever they wanted to do. What, 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 what do you ha- think? What do you think lulls people, uh, the people of Camden, into like that state of just you know not being as proactive? What do you think that is at play? Um, I just think, I mean, nobody sits us down. Like school used to have civics, you know, but this is twenty, thirty, you know, forty years ago before I was a a, a student in the school. 
But nobody sits us down as black folks and tell us how our community is supposed to function. So we we operate outside of the law and and outside of a lot of how civil community works. And I'm not saying that we're uncivilized. I'm just saying that we we don't have any expectation that government is supposed to work for us because we don't know how government works. And as a result, we oftentimes just we just don't know. You know, I had a conversation. So one of the first waves of gentrification that they tried to do in Camden was this thing called the Cherokee Plan. And basically, they had come in and they were going to change Kramer Hill, which is a part of Camden that's bordered by the um, Delaware River. And you can see basically the skyline of Philadelphia from most places in Kramer Hill. They're going to change that into basically a golf community. Right, I remember, I remember this. What year was that? Because I was still um, a um, This would have been like 2000. This is this is in mid to early 2000s. Right. Like 2004 or five or something like that. But it um, but it lasted how long? Because I wasn't. In, I got yeah. 2005. I moved to the area around 2004, 2005. Yeah. So. So. So um, it it didn't last long. Ultimately, because there was a community activist. Now, this is an all-black community for the most part, or all that. Kramer Hill is mostly Latino. Right. And, you know, everybody paid attention to everybody complaining about, you know, being evicted from their homes and, and, and eminent domain. But the reality is the people on city council voted to have those people, those are people in their own community that basically voted to have their houses taken away. Right. You know, the the at the time they brought in a manager of the city because the mayor uh, wasn't capable of basically running the city effectively. That man was actually a former mayor of Camden. So who was the mayor that was in office at the time? Uh, Gwen Faison was a right. uh, right. Gwen, Gwen Faison was the mayor at the time. Randy Primus was like the. Um, I remember that name. Right. He, they 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 brought him in to do it. So. You know, it's like we're complaining about being gentrified, but the reality is all the people that orchestrated this are folks that we voted for. Okay, so let's pause right there. So th- this is, I think this is what I, I got, lo- that got lost in our initial interview that I forgot to pretty much, I guess, contextualize. You're mm-hmm. not saying that gentrification is this great thing and that folks need to be less aware of it. You're actually saying that I think your broader argument in this whole discussion about how Camden changes and how that kind of correlates to changes here in Charleston or any other fast, you know, any other gentrifying city, I mm-hmm. think I think what you're saying is that a lot of the times the, the forces at play are people that we think are on our side or aren't on our side. And then money We've empowered them. Right, we voted we for these people. Right. So we're not, so we're not, we're not holding them accountable. Is that as well? We're not holding them accountable. We're not accepting our level of agency and what goes on in our community in terms of who represents us and how these policies get carried out. You know, um, it's, it's, it's all of those things. I'm not trying to argue whether gentrification is good or bad. The same way I'm not trying to argue whether aging is good or bad. It happens. 
And it's, it's really a matter of your understanding of that process of whether you can take advantage of it or not. Wow. And, and that, that's really what we have to deal with as a community. Uh, you know, anything that rises the standard of living of where you are is typically going to make it more expensive to live there. Right. And you have to make a determination and a value judgment as to, you know, how you're going to be able to take advantage of it. So let me ask mean you a question. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, let me ask you a question. So you're right. Like, so changes are inevitable, whether they be gentrification, like whether it's literally gentrification or any other type of changes within our community, it, it's somewhat inevitable. But I guess my question is, what would help folks? What, what have you seen maybe in other cities that you've lived in? What mm-hmm. what things will help folks adjust to those changes or, or help, um, I guess, navigate those changes better? Like, what kind of well, I think, I think first off, uh, I think people think that fighting this is, is expensive stuff. It's, it's not really, but you have to be educated. You have to look at understanding how your community is supposed to work. You got to look at that as seriously as you would look at, you know, getting educated on an illness that you have. You know, when people get these illnesses, cancer or diabetes, they do all types of reading to understand how to navigate that, that disorder. Well, you have to take understanding your community and understanding the laws and, and policies and how things work. You got to take that with the same level of seriousness. Like I mentioned the, the, the um, Kramer Hill and the Cherokee project, it didn't, people think that there was a lot of money and things that the community put up and there, there, there was a lot of um, opposition to the community and that's why they didn't build it. That wasn't what happened. Frank Fulbrook, a white dude who was a community activist who didn't look like any of the people in that community had done research and realized that there was something that city council and the proponents of the plan had not done. And they realized that it was going to cost them millions of dollars to, to basically start from scratch. So they abandoned the program. Wow. So stop right there. So basically one engaged citizen empowered himself with information and research, the mm-hmm. whole project found and found a flaw and was able to use that and weaponize that against. Right. Okay. Wow. So and he didn't even live. He, and Frank didn't even live in Kramer Hill. Frank lived in like North Camden. So I think he lived on Rutgers Camden's campus. What do you, what do you, I don't know. If, I don't know. And I don't want to get too in the weeds about this specific, mm-hmm. but, but um, ask, I mean, maybe you read the reporting on this or you can remember, what do you think his motivations were? Oh, uh, Frank hated the Democratic machine. <laughs> <laughs> so, was he so, was, you think he was no, concerned? Frank was a Democrat. Wow. Frank, Frank was a very, very progressive Democrat. Uh, I, my first meeting with Frank Fulbrook, uh, Frank Frank famously only had like four, four or five pairs of pants and like six shirts. Uh, and I remember he was walking door to door running for mayor of Camden in like 1983 or something like that. He was going door to door, getting his petition signed and meeting people. And I remember my family kind of laughing, like, what, what's this white dude doing in Camden doing this? But he was always a, a he was just a gadfly. Mm. And he was always somebody that like sticking his, uh, putting a fly in the ointment of the Democratic machine and Democratic, you know, politics. 
which right. honestly is as it's as corrosive right now to me as the Republican politics. Well, definitely, we just have more people on the team. That's right, all, but it's right, right, <laughs> just but, bad. Right. Um. Uh. But just like I, you know, absolute power. You know, you know the cliche. Corrupts so, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, so I guess. Um. And that's one thing I've always tried to. I think as of late, I've been very vocal here in Charleston about folks not just because they have a D by their name if, if they are in fact uh, quote unquote liberal or or democratic um, it's not we can't just vote for those who we think are on our side and if we do we need to hold them accountable so it sounds right. like it sounds like he held he held the um, institutions uh, accountable oh yeah yeah and I think that's so so that's that's a great I'm glad we got to talk about him because I think that's what we need more. We need more uh, individuals lobbying for themselves, not for any party, not for any party interest, but lobbying for their communities. And even though he wasn't directly in the communities that would have been impacted, he had enough concern and care for what the ramifications of the Cherokee Project would have yielded. Um, well, more than that, I think he recognized that he could be next. Yeah, right. And, see, and that's the part that our folks sometimes don't like. If it if it goes on on the other side of town, you know, it could be in your side of town next. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, they they can they just practicing over there, but when they come to you, they might have a real thing. Right. So you know, we have to be thinking and conscious of that. You know, in order to combat some of the things that are going to go on in, in our communities to undermine our culture and other things that we, we say that we hold dear. So so where you live at right now, and I know you and I have spoken privately about mm-hmm. where you may be in a, in, a, in a few years from now, um, but I, I, know your, I know your heart is in Camden. What mm-hmm. is the, what's the number one priority as you live in Camden? What's the number one priority for the neighborhood where you live in? Um, right now, uh, I, there is no priority. There is no, there's no organized for you. Priority. For you. For you. Well, for me, yeah. uh, my priority is just really to secure my home and to, you know, try to keep my neighborhood clean for as long as possible. Uh, you know, there are abandoned properties near me, trying to figure out some way to make them attractive enough that people can move in. You know, I, I've lived on. I've had uh, abandoned properties on either side of me for the better part of 30 years. Wow. One of them, you know, uh, so, and, and we're talking about viable properties, you know, and, you know, we're in a situation where we have, uh, you know, housing shortages and we have uh, places that are unaffordable to live. I have a house next to me that for probably $20,000 worth of work, is is habitable for a single family and um we're not we're not taking advantage of economically what we could be doing in order to move somebody into that home you you know um so those are the type of things that i'm trying to think about uh i've thought about uh working I, i just between when we spoke last uh a good friend of mine called me and we randomly started talking about the a credit union and we were uh, developing a credit union is something that I've been thinking of for the last year and a half or so, because I think it's a way that we can start to um, 
go to a depressed community like Camden and start to bring some of the uh, capital that you need in order for folks to be able to do things with their house that, you know, increase the value enough so that you're not a target of gentrification and some of the other things that are coming down the, the pipeline. You know, at, at its heart, gentrification is an economic argument. And we, we have to do things that increase the value of our property to, that, to not make us a target. Uh, and so that, that, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think that you're right. Gentrification is an economic argument. And I'm glad you frame it as such. And I think that's, you know, your degree. What are your degrees in again? What is your education in? Uh, I have a degree in chemistry and I have a master's in business administration. Right. So you, you study, you know, economics, I'm sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Quite a bit. Right. So I think it's important to kind of sometimes um, not necessarily remove the emotion um, uh, completely, but it's important to look at it from um, an I guess a policy pers- uh, point of view, um, yeah. an economic policy point of view. But I, I wanted to pivot. Um, sure, sure. To, uh, to not only um, is gentrification, and I didn't get to ask you this in our initial discussion, but mm-hmm. not only like the the gentrification and the the displacement of black and brown bodies and mm-hmm. all that. You know, crime is a big issue in Camden, and mm-hmm. I wanted to know how do you feel the uh, and, and um, as succinctly as you can, how do you feel uh, Camden's response to the crime issue? How do you feel like the police department is doing? Or wh- yeah, what are your what's your take on c- crime in Camden? Um, well, crime uh, the crime that people uh, probably identify Camden with is murder, but there there was probably in the last two years there's been less murders in the last two years as we've had in like 2013 or 14 in Camden, you know, when, when the murders were at their highest. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we've had a situation where uh, police officers got ambushed by, you know, people in the community and almost got killed. Mm-hmm. Um, the crime is really a function of the economics as well. Right. If if people feel like they're in an economically viable situation, they they they're not pivoting towards crime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so all the all the like right now, crime is is in terms of murders is down. But there's a lot of other crimes that are going on that uh, that, that the police really aren't adequate to investigating. It's like if you don't get murdered in Camden, that's it. So the robbery the assault, batteries, some of that stuff doesn't get investigated as, as fraud is another one. Don't get as inv- investigated as vigorously as they probably should be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think the other thing is all the things that make Camden a very um, unsafe place to be are all still here. I think we're in sort of a lull because, you know, there's a lot more people working, even though they're working multiple jobs and they're not necessarily getting paid very well. You got a lot more people working. And uh, I think that you, we are in a cycle because a lot of the people who would be uh, committing a lot of crime in the city have either been killed, they're, they're in jail, or they may have just aged out of crime. Mm. But, you know, the, the reality is 
all the predicate that made this the city that had that reputation is still there. And and city leaders, uh, chief of police, they don't seem to have uh, any handle on anything that's going on. They're just they're just taking you know credit for uh, a natural evolution of how crime works. And like but, um, I guess too, like there, there's a visible uh, increased police presence, and then like you said, well, yeah. they're, they're pointing to the in voting state. areas. Right, right. The, now, you mentioned the, that. You the mentioned police, that. The, right. The, the police presence is is in Parkside, and it might be also in Whitman Park, because these are probably the two most dense, vote dense populations in a city where people don't vote that much to begin with. That's so. But let's stop, Camden, stop right there. Like, let me interject right there. That's a huge. Like you mentioned that on our first conversation, and that was huge. Like I when we drove through. You're right. The the better manicured. Uh, neighborhoods were the ones where we saw the squad cars in twos and threes um and yeah you you could see it you could see the um what do you call is that does that have a name when you police well, i don't know if that has a name well they call it community policing okay. but uh yeah but okay. also uh, it's it's they basically the, the politicians uh in camden basically took our police force and outsourced it to the county. So basically the city of Camden paid to have the county take over our police force. Right. They didn't tell us how much it was going to cost. It ended up costing two or three times the amount of money that they... So in a cost-saving measure, the, the city basically turned over its policing to the county and now we're policed by the county. So to a certain degree, the city doesn't even have oversight of its own police force. Wow. And we're the only we're the only municipality in the state of New Jersey that has this this arrangement. That's very interesting. I, I can I can uh, see some issues with that down the road. So my my last question is always mm-hmm. I want to, you know, this is a Charleston based activist slash, you know, mm-hmm. just just talking about issues that impact marginalized communities. So my last question to you is one that is similar to what I posed to you in our initial discussion um, is what do you think for, for, you know, Charleston is the number one fastest gentrifying city in America. Mm-hmm. And um, the displacement of poor folk is, I mean, you literally can actually see it. You'll, you'll, you'll drive through uh, former economic powerhouses and you'll see, mm. you'll see businesses, you know, closing their doors that can't afford the, the cost of operation. Right. So San Francisco is the same thing. I just thought right. no, question on that. And especially with housing in San Francisco, you mean you can be a yeah. college professor and not be able to live in San Francisco. So my question, my question to you is what advice would you have for the average Charlestonian, black or brown or poor person, mar- anyone marginalized, what advice would you have for them to, to navigate, to help them navigate gentrification? Um, well, the one thing is you have to be as educated on the process and the policies as as you can. You got to educate your neighbors. You got to create a Facebook page or thing. You have to befriend some folks that can help you understand the policy. Befriend some attorneys. Befriend some uh, historians and sociologists that can help you break down and understand how this works and, and how this is happening. 
I think the other thing that you have to do, you have to fight the economics of it. You have to do the things for your property and your neighborhood that increase the value. And, and a lot of times, these are things that you can do that don't cost you any money. Mm. I mean, right now, I don't believe Camden is being gentrified, but that's kind of the way things look. And what what depresses the values of the properties in our community is often things that we have control over. Mm. And, you know, it basically cheapens our community because it makes it makes us look uh, like uh, like because you have trash in your neighborhood mm-hmm. and trash in the house next door to you. I have to discount the value of your property because I've got to account for the fact that I got to get all that trash picked up. Mm-hmm. You know, well, if you keep the if you manicure your place, if you keep your place looking a certain way, people start to understand. You know, somebody there cares about that property and we're going to have to come up with more money because we can't say well there's trash around there you know it's the same thing with the dirt bikes that ride through our community you know well people are going to say hey look uh, I I can discount your, what your value is because you got all these motorbikes riding around with all this noise pollution and the public safety hazard that I, that, that is Okay. Well, you know, we gotta, we we have to. I mean, it sounds simple. No, I understand. But, I, I, you sound you sound a little get off my porch with the last one. I get yeah, it. Yeah, I know. I know. It sounds like that. But, and um, yeah, but you know, black. Let me finish. Uh, black yeah, black and brown folks just needing to escape some things, and we create our own ways to do that. But like I said, um, uh, as we wrap it up, though, like, so you're saying reinvest in your community and leave us with a yeah. good. Leave us with a good word. Like, what, what, what are you like hopeful for? I know you. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. But like, what are you after watching? I'm, I'm hopeful that watching Aretha's funeral. Like, you have like. What you say? After watching Aretha's funeral, I, 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 I love black people. You need hope. Yeah, can no. I put my Can I put my arm around you uh, at no, the pulpit? No, 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 don't do that. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, my man was out of control. Look, yeah. I, I will say this. What I'm hopeful about is the fact that there's a crop of young people who don't have a lot of the, um, they don't, they're not carrying a lot of the baggage of, you know, what the old folks are doing. Right. They have um, access to some technology and stuff. Like, I could only imagine what Martin Luther King would be like with a Twitter account. You know, I mean, so those we there's a, there's a there is a a, a a crew, a crop of young people coming along that that get it, and they they're a little bit more um, understanding of a of a bunch of other things, and I'm just hopeful that uh, us old folks don't get in their way, and can can give them have the wisdom and the guidance that can that can. Uh, fortify them and and put them in a position where they can do things for the community, instead of the the tearing them down or the constant criticism of what they value or should value. You know, give them some guidance, uh, a good constructive guidance, where you, you're helping build them up and you know move out of their way. You know, revolution is always a young person's sport, so you know we gotta empower them and and they these people have a bunch of tools that you know that they were unheard of 30 years ago 
So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, where they take those things and, and how they use them for good. Wow. Well, thank you, Theo, so much for joining me again. I really appreciate your perspective. Much better, right? Much, much better. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully you enjoyed that conversation uh, with Theo, uh, between Theo and I. I know I I learned something new each time he and I speak, and this episode, or rather this interview, is no different. Uh, uh, I want to reiterate, I know Camden, New Jersey, and Charleston, South Carolina are two very different destinations, two very different cities, um, with two distinctly different uh, histories. However, um, you know, as he mentioned in the interview, the changes we see in cities like Camden, like Jersey City, like Chicago, and so on, they're happening everywhere. And it's not exclusive to any one community. And um, I also hope that what you got from this episode is a sense of empowerment Um, I think many people um, are committed to their communities, right? We all love where we live. We love our hometown. We love, you know, our cul-de-sac, our our neighborhood, our block, whatever. Um, And we care about the changes that take place there. But what what I walked away after talking to Theo um, in this second conversation, what I walked away with is a sense of commitment, I want to take a more active role in my community. I live on Wadmala Island, which is still very rural. Um, it's part of the county. I am not part of the city of Charleston. I do not have a mayor <laughs> to rail against. However, um, I want to keep Wadmala, Wadmala. And on my island, I'm very, very proud to say that we do have a group of very passionate and engaged group of fellow citizens who have taken it upon themselves to communicate to one another. We have an active Facebook group, which I enjoy being a part of. Um, and we also there's also a newsletter that's mailed out to most of the residents on the island and it keeps us um, up to date on all things regarding real estate and a trash cleanup day that is held every month or, or ever so often. I'm not quite sure if it's monthly. But that's just one example of how an engaged community can take it upon themselves and maintain, you know, the things that we hold near and dear to our hearts where we live. Uh, And that's just one story. There are so many stories um, from West Ashley to North Charleston to Somerville where you hear about these engaged community leaders who have created strong groups and have stopped negative changes in their communities. Um, We've seen it, I think, a couple years ago uh, at the site of the the Charleston Firefighters 9. I I don't want to confuse that with the Emanuel 9, but the the area that uh, the Super, the Sulphur Super Center, I believe it was, it was the Sulphur store that, um, that caught on fire and it claimed the lives of nine firefighters. And there's a memorial there to honor the lives that were lost and when uh, I believe a parking lot or an impound lot was scheduled to or was there were plans for that to be erected next to that memorial well active citizens in West Ashley said no not here we need something more fitting to go there if anything and so they stopped 
um, they stopped that action. And I, 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 I'm so impressed by that. And I know I'm not recalling the details well, but um, I, I really do want to follow up with that group maybe one day and, and talk about, you know, talk to them about what they did to stop that change from happening. But they saw something they didn't like coming down the pike, so to speak, and they stopped it right there. And um, I, I hope we all do that. I hope we all stand up to change no matter what interest we have. Hopefully we're more interested in each other's well-being and um, keeping our homes, you know, in our hands. And um, it should be a nonpartisan issue. So um, that's something I took away from this sit down with Theo as well. I, I feel more empowered and more committed to being part of the positive changes or the rather um, the leadership uh, in my neighborhood. So thank you for listening. Uh, I am working on an, a very, very important interview coming up shortly. Um, I'm excited about the next couple of episodes that, that I have planned for everyone. And so I appreciate you growing with me. And I, I like to keep up my mistakes even if my audio isn't perfect, I like to keep them up because it shows growth and it shows the realness behind this grassroots effort. So thank you so much for listening. Please look out for Charleston Activist Network um, at upcoming events. Again, September 22nd, I myself will be hosting a very special live music event. Uh, My friend Benny Starr, aka Benjamin Starr, aka Fitz, whatever you want to call him. (laughs) Um, He will be recording his sophomore album live at the Charleston Music Hall on September 22nd. So I hope to see you all there. Information to his show will be linked in the description of this episode, as well as all over our social media. So that's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And of course, you can find out more information and more behind the scenes content on our Patreon page. So if you want to support your girl, you want to just support this platform, which is the Charleston Activist Network, please uh, consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. You can even just pledge a dollar a month or do a one-time donation of $10, whatever you want to do. Your support means a lot. And your support actually enables so much more going on behind the scenes. Um, So uh, yeah, you'll get a lot of behind the scenes content, exclusive mini podcast episodes, and etc. All of that information again is in the description of this podcast. So look for us at the uh, the September 22nd event. Also, uh, please mark your calendars. If you have young people, young voters, we're talking college age and maybe a little bit younger um, on October 6th at Cool Blow Park here in downtown Charleston, I'm having a festival of sorts. It's going to be called the Rock Rose Festival, where we will be just centering the voices of black and brown uh, voting age youth or soon to be voting age youth. Um, And I want to have a concert. I want to have arts. I want to celebrate Gullah culture um, in a progressive, unapologetic and bold way. So please mark your calendars for October 6th. And um, there will be ways for you to help us out with that. Just like you all showed up on January 20th for the Women's March Rally for Electoral Justice. I really do um, anticipate some support because we want to mobilize and empower the young voices uh, that are are emerging. And like Theo said, um, revolution is built for the young folk. So let's empower them and give them the tools they need to succeed. 
Okay, so that's it. That's all I have for you on this episode. Please look out for more content and more episodes coming up very shortly. Thank you for hanging out with me. Take care.